Thanks for tuning in to Over the Road Bible, a podcast from TFC Global. I'm your host, John Coupel, and I'm TFC Global's Denver area chaplain. Over the past few years, I've been a pastor, overseas missionary, and chaplain, and I love to learn and teach the Bible. When I learned about the challenges that truckers and professional drivers face here in America, like loneliness, isolation, addictions, and everything else that's rampant in the industry, I decided to become a chaplain with TFC Global to make an impact in people's lives. This podcast is for anyone who wants to listen, but I'm making it with professional drivers in mind. In our time together each week, we'll read and study the Bible in a short form that can be listened to on the road or on a break at a truck stop. I'll also do my best to let you know about resources to help you get plugged in to Christian community on the road. If this podcast is a blessing to you, I would love for you to share it with others so that it can be a blessing for them too. Welcome back to Over the Road Bible, where we're studying expositionally through the Gospel of John. We're halfway through chapter 3, and last week we looked at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. We looked at this concept of duality of judgment and how Jesus categorizes all people into two groups when he's talking about this judgment with the Pharisee, uh, Nicodemus. There are those who have eternal life because they believe in Jesus, and then there are those who are condemned. Now, before we press into our passage for this week, uh, which will end the third chapter of John's Gospel, I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of duality and judgment, especially the concept of blessing and cursing. So at this point, if you've been following along with each episode of this podcast and you've been studying through John with me, it would be no surprise to you that this is a thoroughly Old Testament concept. We get the first glimpses of it in the Garden of Eden on the first pages of Genesis. In that story, God placed Adam and Eve into a garden that he had made for them. The garden was full of trees, but there were two trees in the middle of the garden. One was called the Tree of Life, and the other was called the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. And eating from either of these two trees would have had a specific outcome for Adam and Eve. In chapter 2, God instructs them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if they did, they would die. And in chapter 3, God says when he sends them out of the garden, it's so that they don't eat from the tree of life, because if they eat from it, they will live forever. Or another way to say this would be that they would get eternal life. And then you might ask, why is that a bad thing? Isn't that what Jesus is giving people based on what he told Nicodemus in John 3? But the problem in Eden was that it was after Adam and Eve sinned. And we see the relationship between God and man broken by sin. And God didn't want man to live forever in a state of broken relationship. So eternal life at this point in the story would have actually been a bad thing uh, because the wages of sin is death. Death had to enter the world so that Jesus could come and die for sin to be taken care of. So you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, eating from that resulted in death. You have the tree of life, and eating from that uh, resulted in eternal life. And so you end up with these two trees, one representing blessing and obedience, and the other representing cursing and disobedience. So this idea of blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience, it continues into the law. 
So Moses is at Mount Sinai giving the law to Israel throughout the second half of Exodus and all of Leviticus. God is giving these laws to this new nation that he just brought out of their slavery in Egypt, and he's doing it through the mediation of Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses gets all the way to the end of the book of Leviticus, the second to last chapter, and he stops giving laws. Instead, now he talks about Israel's obedience or disobedience to all the laws that had been given up to this point. So for the sake of time, I just want to point out a couple verses that signify the duality of judgment, the same concept that Jesus is talking about with Nicodemus. So imagine this chapter of Leviticus 26 split into two parts. The first part lays out all the blessing that God is going to give to to the nation of Israel if they're obedient. And the second part is all the cursing that Israel will face from God if they're disobedient. And that should sound familiar when we look at the same pattern from Eden, the two trees in the garden. In the first part, the blessing for obedience part, verse 11, this is God speaking to Israel and it says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. It's that theme of God and man dwelling together that we've hit multiple times already as we've read through the book of John. Uh, So that theme is fulfilled in Jesus. So thinking about that's the positive side of the judgment. When we think about the duality of judgment, we look at the flip side, and that's the second half of the chapter. If we just look at verse 32, for example, and again, this is God speaking, it says, I myself, this is if Israel is disobedient, God says, I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. The idea here is that if Israel is disobedient to the law, then God will not dwell with them. He'll separate them from himself. So last thing before we get started into this week's verses, and and we'll get to them soon, I want to take this Old Testament theme of the duality of judgment forward into another part of the New Testament, into another gospel. Uh, This is in Matthew chapter 25, which is commonly uh, referred to as the Olivet Discourse, or it's part of the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, which is just on the east side of Jerusalem. His disciples come to him privately and start asking him about the last days. Now, when they do, he gives quite a long teaching on the topic, and one of the things he talks about is this idea of a final judgment. He uses an interesting metaphor to express the duality of this final judgment. And it says in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. So jumping ahead for time, he talks about the works of the sheep and the works of the goats. And of course, if you know the law, then you know that these works are about obedience to the law or disobedience to the law. Or to put it another way, what separates the the sheep from the goats is whether or not they loved their neighbor and loved God. He goes on to say to the sheep, 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's the dwelling with God. But in contrast, he says to the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So that's kind of a bit of a biblical summary of this idea of the the duality of judgment that Jesus hit on last week as he was talking with Nicodemus. I hope that all of that makes sense. Um, I just kind of wanted to give a bit more of a biblical foundation for the concept of the duality of judgment since I only briefly touched on it last week. Uh, But it definitely seemed important to Jesus's understanding of both the Old Testament and the work that he himself was on earth to accomplish. So I think it ought to be important to us too. And so it's good to spend a little bit of time today to understand it. If you have questions about the Bible, I want to talk about it. Email me at jonathanc at tfcglobal.org with your name, where you're from, and your concise yet thorough question, and I'd love to talk about it on the podcast. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-C at tfcglobal.org. Now we get into the passage for this week, and we're going to see another encounter between John the Baptist and the Pharisees. It seems more and more like these Pharisees are completely opposed to John's ministry of baptism in the wilderness. They're very much being developed in the story as the antagonists who are opposed to this ministry. So we're going to read from John chapter 3, starting in verse 22 and going through verse 36, which is the end of the chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, He is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John is the TFC Global Chaplain for the Denver, Colorado area. 
If you'd like to financially support this podcast to keep it free of advertisements and support chaplaincy work in Denver, you can follow the link in the description to donate through PayPal. If you are from or traveling through the Denver area and would like to talk about chaplaincy services for your company or just meet with a chaplain for prayer, reach out at jonathanc at tfcglobal.org. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-C at tfcglobal.org. So Jesus finishes his conversation with Nicodemus, and he and the disciples who have been following him since chapter one, they go to the Judean countryside, which is another way to say that they were somewhere around Jerusalem. And Jesus is baptizing, and also John is baptizing. It tells us that there was a lot of water around there. This is something interesting, just thinking about Israel in modern terms. A lot of people might not think about this, but back in Jesus's time, All of the water in the Jordan River flowed from the springs that are north of the Sea of Galilee. They go into the Sea of Galilee, leave that sea going from north to south, become the Jordan River, and that river flows all the way down into the Dead Sea. Uh, This was a huge river that would be basically full year-round and very difficult to cross. And a story about crossing this river, if you think back to when Israel crossed the Jordan River under the leadership of Joshua to conquer the Promised Land. And you'll remember that the people couldn't even make their way across without God miraculously stopping the water so that they could walk across. The reason this is sort of interesting to picture today is that that is not at all what this place looks like now. The problem with the Dead Sea today is that it's, it's this great tourist attraction and people come from all over the world to swim in the Dead Sea because it's so salty that you actually float in the Dead Sea. It's really uh, it's fun and interesting to swim there. Um, but it doesn't serve any real purpose for Israel besides tourism. There's obviously no fishing because everything in the Dead Sea is dead and it's saltier even than the ocean. So as soon as the water enters the Dead Sea from the Jordan, it becomes so salty that it's unusable for anything other than this tourist attraction. So you can imagine a country that is mostly desert, like Israel, needs all the water that they can get. So for years now, Israel has been diverting water out of the Jordan River before it reaches the Dead Sea. Obviously this makes sense. They want water to drink, water to put in their crops. This is something that they have to do, but they're diverting so much that the Dead Sea is actually retreating. It's getting smaller. The place that John mentions that John the Baptist was at, which is, uh, he says, Ainon near Salim. Well, we think they know where this location is, or at least it's a, it's a pretty accurate guess where this location is. And you can go there today. There's stairs that you can walk down and see the Jordan River. But what's interesting is that there's a fence halfway across the river that runs parallel to the banks because you could literally walk into the river and wade from Israel into Jordan, the nation of Jordan, because there's so little water. This fence is maybe four or five feet tall, and you can see the top of it sticking up over the Jordan River. That's how little water there is today. None of this is really all that important to John's story, because 
I'm talking about how things are today in contrast to what John, how John says they were back then. But it's just interesting to think about how that changed from John's description where the water was plentiful there. And today, that spot where John was baptizing uh, is not much more than a mud puddle. But back to the point that John is making, he's transitioning here in the middle of chapter 3. It's a transition that we could miss if we're not looking for it. The whole first half of the chapter was about Jesus, but now the narrative shifts back to John the Baptist. And sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I like to imagine it cinematically. Like, how would this be filmed um, if I think of it in terms of like a big epic movie? And I imagine a, a, a big camera pan from Jesus and his disciples. And then the camera starts flying down the Jordan River and it zooms in and stops on the scene a little way down the Jordan River and comes to rest on John as this Pharisee is walking up to him and his disciples. So what what the gospel writer John is doing is he's transitioning the story from Jesus to John the Baptist. So John's disciples are having this conversation with a Jew. And of course, it's a Jew because they're in Judea. But remember how John uses this term. This is likely one of the rulers of the Jews uh, who we know as a Pharisee. And look at what they're debating about. Purification. So in chapter 1 and 2, John, uh, the gospel writer, I want to always differentiate when I can between the gospel writer John and John the Baptist. It's kind of sometimes annoying to have people with the same name in a story like this, but the gospel writer John pointed out to his readers through various means, including a repeating number pattern from the Old Testament and the water pots for purification at the wedding feast at Cana, this is a theme that John keeps coming back to, the idea of purification. And you might say that John himself is not the one who keeps coming back to the theme. He's just describing the events that are going on. But I would say, remember, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he said that he did not write down everything in Jesus's life and ministry, but he picked and chose certain events to include in his writing so that his readers would believe that Jesus was the Old Testament Messiah. So he chose to bring up purification over and over again. He's emphasizing the stories where purification comes up. You'll remember Last time I talked about purification that I referenced Numbers chapter 19 uh, while we were studying in John 2. And it seems like Numbers chapter 19, this specific passage of the Old Testament is very prominent in John's mind as he's talking about the life and ministry of Jesus. Unfortunately, we're not given all the details of the discussion that John's disciples were having with this Pharisee about purification. And I would have loved to be a fly on the wall during that discussion but we are going to get into Numbers chapter 19 at some point in our study, and I want to show how it parallels the life and ministry of Jesus and why I think that purification is so important to John. But for now, before we get to that, probably here in a few weeks, uh, I just want to point out, I want us to have this idea of purification in our mind, that this is something that's really important to John. He's showing Jesus as the purifying sacrifice. We want to think about what that means to him and why he's portraying Jesus that way. But for now, instead of giving us details on that conversation about purification, John shifts to telling us about this conversation where the Pharisees question John and John's disciples about who is baptizing and why. It takes on a slightly 
maybe let me say accusatory tone, similar to when the disciples, uh, not the disciples, when the Pharisees questioned John the Baptist in John chapter one. This time they go to John and they say, and I'm going to paraphrase what they say. They say, hey, John, uh, that other guy who's out there baptizing, you know, the one who you bore witness about, do you know that people are leaving you and going to follow him? So what are they saying with that statement? What they're doing is they're playing on human pride. Remember that they're not necessarily happy about John baptizing people in the wilderness because they are losing followers and likely losing money because for them religion is this business. So they're upset about their followers going to follow these guys who are baptizing in the wilderness and they're attempting by this line of questioning to put their own pride and insecurity onto John. It's like they're projecting what they're worried about for their own ministry. So they say, you're losing followers to another person's uh, ministry. It's exactly what they're, what they're worried about for themselves. But for all their efforts and all of this line of questioning, John doesn't respond to these Pharisees with the pridefulness that they are expecting or maybe hoping for. Here's what John says. He says, no one has anything that he doesn't receive from heaven. Or in other words, this might be, it's not up to me who follows me. The people who follow me are sent to me from God and the people who stop following me, that's God's plan too. I don't have any control over that. He says, I don't have anything. No one has anything, especially me, that's not given from heaven. Then he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. Or in other words, I already told you I'm not the Messiah. Why would I be trying to accumulate followers? He goes on to talk about the person who they're questioning him about. He says, that other guy over there, he's the Messiah. So if people are leaving me and following him, that's great because I must decrease and he must increase. He even says that that makes his joy complete to have people leaving him and following Jesus. That's what's bringing joy into his ministry is pointing these people uh, to Jesus. He says, my joy is not based on how many people follow me, but on whether or not I'm pointing them to Jesus. So we read the whole passage earlier, and I don't have a lot to say about the rest of John's statements. He basically says to them that anyone who believes in what Jesus says, believes that God is true and receives the Spirit because Jesus gives the Spirit. And this idea of Jesus giving the Spirit, this is the first time that John talks about it in his gospel, but it's going to become a very important aspect of the gospel as we move through John's writing. So just keep this concept in mind uh, for the future, the idea of Jesus giving the Spirit. Now lastly, John's closing statement, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son, so in other words, uh, believe and obey are being uh, equated together in this verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So with the wrath of God remaining on those who don't believe, then logically what John is saying is that the wrath of God does not remain on all those who do believe. This takes us back to the idea of the duality of judgment, but even more importantly, it is one of the first glimpses of the idea of what we call substitutionary atonement. The idea is that God's wrath towards sin is poured out on Jesus. 
as a substitution available for everyone. So that if we accept the sacrifice of Jesus, he is the substitute who already received God's wrath. If someone doesn't accept that sacrifice, then that wrath of God remains on them. Thank you to everyone who listened today to Over the Road Bible, a teaching podcast from TFC Global. I hope this has been an encouragement and blessing for you. Please tune in again next week and we'll keep moving through the Gospel of John. To all of you putting in the hours out on the road, I appreciate you and the work you do. God bless you.